welcome, welcome. Happy Hunger Games. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Now, before we begin, we have a very special film brought to you all the way from the capital. Welcome, pop culture theologians. We're so glad you're back with us, and we are just so happy to be breaking down our episode today. Um, before we begin, we want to give a quick shout out to the Engaged Gaze, who hosts our podcasts, as well as a way in which you can find us online. You can find the show on Twitter at Pop Theologians, and you can find me. Your very faithful John Erickson at J Erickson eighty five. Marcy, where can we find you? Don't you mean off Brent? <laughs> oh yes, off Brent. Where can we find you? <laughs> hey everyone, it's Marcy. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at at I am the men who can, um, and I also go by off Brent on Twitter. And then um, you can find us, like John said, on Facebook and Twitter, um, the Pop Theologians. So we look forward to interacting with you. So, Marcy, before we break down the first film in the Hunger Games series, what the fuck happened this week? <laughs> a lot happened this week. And actually, even as we speak, I'm about to update it because there's been kind of breaking news today that um, is relevant to my life, which is all that really matters to me, obviously. Um, exactly. <laughs> but let's start off with, um, for sure the climate change report that came out this week. Uh, so, John, you want to break this one down? Yeah, basically Florida's gone. Thanks. I See, I knew you would immediately go to the one thing that mattered. Yeah, Florida's gone. Everything, like, along the coast is gone. People are going to die. And Trump called it fake news. Right. So interesting, uh, the White House, the information about this climate report was dropped on Black Friday, which is notoriously uh, a great day to drop some dark shit because no one's paying attention. We've all got the itis after having eaten Thanksgiving meal, and then we're all trying to shop till we drop. Not really, but like people shop till they drop. So this climate uh, report is terrifying. Uh, it, it says nothing that we didn't know. So to be clear, the alarm bells on climate change have been going on forever. Um, but this is like very dire. Like we pretty much have like four years left to turn this shit around. And even then we will not be able to turn it around to the point where uh, we will never have to talk about climate change again. But like the point of no return is here. So um, I really feel like this is those scenes and like those post-apocalyptic movies where the right. government just like telling you like, hey, you have 15 years to turn it around just to like calm down, like initial panic. But like, really, we were supposed to be doing this in like the yeah. 80s. Well, here's what's interesting. Like, um, so one of the one of the pillars of philanthropy that I my organization works with is sustainability. And a report 10 years ago said we had five years. So I actually agree with John. I think at this point. Uh, the powers that be have nothing to gain by being like we're completely fucked but like we are literally completely fucked like um it's really scary Uh, i will say we might as well podcast right and i will say i had like some um i was encouraged by the amount of attention the report got despite the white house trying so hard to bury it so speaking of the white house burying things 
did you catch the story about Ivanka and her emails? Yeah, I fucking hate Ivanka Trump. So I heard they're going to lock her up since, since that's what we do for emails, right? I heard that this is going to be covered all in the New York Times. There's going to be investigative reports, specials, CNN specials. The media is just going to really capitalize on making sure Ivanka is held to the same standard that the media did with Hillary Clinton. Exactly. So obviously Ivanka Trump's going to jail for her emails. They're going to lock her up. Uh, we're thrilled. It's going to be a hearing in Congress for yeah. hours. JK! Apparently she didn't know emails were a big thing. So <laughs> I have nothing to say other than like, wow. Nice. Next. <laughs> Thank you. Next. <laughs> um, so before we jump into like the final one, the one that we're slipping in is Margaret Atwood, the author of The Handmaid's Tale, which if all of y'all don't know, my non-existent dissertation is on The Handmaid's Tale and has been for like seven years six years so <laughs> um that includes coursework assholes so I'm give or take there. i'm with you so it's like not like i have anything to gain getting there no decent dissertation and phd is finished in under 10 years so everyone suck it um she released today that she is going to release a sequel to the handmaid's tale and i know what you're all thinking i'm probably super psyched no i'm not john are you psyched no we do not need a sequel the we ambiguity. The ambiguity of the Handmaid's Tale is what makes it the story for all times. So the fact that everything is really high level, that we don't get a conclusion, um, is what helps us situate ourselves when we read it as Offred and as people in the story. I don't need a conclusion to the Handmaid's Tale. The ambiguity is the power of that story. Uh, so stop it. Stop it. Don't Crimes of Grindelwald the shit out of The Handmaid's Tale, man. It's been a rough month. Oh, you month. went there. I did. Because <laughs> I'm still pissed. Look, even my dog's pissed. She's barking. Um, so that's the one we're slipping in here. I'm just kind of like in shock that she's doing this. Um, it feels like such a money grab. I don't even know what to do. Um, so the final thing we were going to cover, and I think the reason that I saved this one for last is it, it'll tie in with the reason we, I'll tie this in with why we want to cover the Hunger Games, uh, during this kind of like Christmas break. So here's the thing. Why, why do a Hunger Games rewatch pro like project, uh, at the end of 2018? And I guess like my response would be, how could we not do one? Um, this past week, uh, Trump and the Trump administration started gassing children and, and families at the border. And th these were children and family that were seeking asylum at the American border, which is something that is 100% legal. Uh, the narrative was that they were storming the gates, right? I don't know what gates we're talking about, but like uh, the action of seeking asylum is 100% legal. It is at the foundation of human rights to be able to seek asylum. Uh, and it's been a hard week. Um, like as a Latina who has family, who has come here under every single type of immigration status, um, I can't process a lot of this. And that's not to say that there's anything to process about anything that's been happening over the last couple of years. Um, and it's not like we don't have an extremely bloody history with people uh, who have sought help, but it's devastating. The connection here is that because it's so difficult to talk about things like the, the like 
gassing of children at a border, right? Um, we seek, like John and I have, have, we've stated this before, we seek to look to our mythology as a culture for not easier ways to like take away the culpability of needing to talk about this, but ways in which we can draw from our, our own narratives to talk about the hard things. I can't think of something more appropriate for 2018 than the Hunger Games, which pretty much pits an unstoppable oligarchy type dictatorship of a capital versus a completely oppressed and segregated and, and sectioned people and what it takes to rise up and resist. So I, I, John, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, but like one of the things that like really shook me this week was that um, I guess some of the border agents were extremely offended at the tone taken when covering the gassing of children. And all I've got to say before we dive into the Hunger Games is if your boss asks you to gas children, you quit. You quit, you riot, you go to jail, you gas the people asking you to gas children. The one thing you don't do is gas children. Because the second you, you do that, you are no better than your supreme leader and history will judge you for that. So without, without further ado. <laughs> with that, Marcy, I have nothing to add. But I think, and with that, listeners, may the odds be ever in your favor. So we're breaking down the Hunger Games. And John, we're going to continue our trend from last week, right? Of what worked, what didn't work, and kind of where we think it goes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so why don't we start off with you? Let's talk about the things that worked for us in this first Hunger Games. Obviously, listeners, this is under the assumption that you have seen the Hunger Games. We're not going to break down the plot point by point. Yeah, because if we were to do that, it would be probably six to five, like seven hours of a podcast. However, um, one of the things that I really loved about this first film um, in a four-part series was the casting of Jennifer Lawrence. I think this is J-Law in her prime. This is really coming off of her with the winter's bone and this really unique look at life in Western Virginia or the Appalachians. And what she did in that film was so raw and powerful. And I think that's what really got her this film because of the ways in which The Hunger Games is set in that rustic, area of Pan Am, right? But I think the way in which Jennifer Lawrence plays this character, Katniss Everdeen, our faithful hero, right? It's just so amazing. She gets better with time, um, not including part one of Mockingjay, and we'll get there in a few episodes, but I just really, really enjoy the casting of her. And I just look and I see the restraint in her face that I really saw in Katniss's thoughts in the book because she does a lot of inner monologue she doesn't talk a lot because that people I think and kids are trained not to talk a lot during this but she discovers herself and I just really appreciated this film um, for her and I think she adds to it I don't know if I could picture it with someone else but I would have to see who they thought about casting right so interesting so that'll be in something that did not work for me um I I I grew to like Jennifer Lawrence's Katniss. Um, I do not think she was the right casting, um, but I will agree that she does well as this rural Appalachian hero. Uh, 
I did follow a lot of the casting, to be honest, on like Mockingjay.net and some of the other like fan sites that were waiting for this announcement. And there were there were great people in the mix for it. Uh, I'm going to be very honest, like non-white blue-eyed uh, women in the mix, which if you've read the books, the description of her is extremely clear that she is like a brownish, weedish skinned uh woman and so for me the casting of jennifer lawrence was a bit problematic from the get-go that is not a critique on her talent um it was just i i'm not sure if you could have said some other some of the other actresses in the running that were more famous at the time like you needed a headliner but jennifer lawrence was pretty much unknown um other than winter's bone so we'll see we'll see uh, her career is an interesting career that i keep uh following but i am all here for j-law so we're just gonna have to agree to disagree on this one um but i do see the points and like the critiques of like who like how her acting like develops in the later films i i totally am there with you and i'm not like you know above critiquing that because i think that that's something necessary i for the for some reason in regards to these films and books, I don't recall the books as well as I normally would. Um, I think that's because I read them so fast. I read them when we lived together, Marcy, if I remember I correctly. I know. Shout out to our fate, our fate, our friend Kate, who actually got us all reading them. Um, so no, totally. Like I think we can. Ag- I and it's not even an agree to disagree. I think she did fine. Um, I was just because I was heavily invested in the casting process of the entire films uh it was interesting to kind of see it all play out but there's other characters that i think we would agree on right so like hamich and effie i thought were really great casting oh my god incredible yeah like it's just um over i will say so my original hamich was john c Riley in my head um maybe now i can't even recall why but but oh overall i think the casting uh, was was pretty decent with a like with one major issue for me, which we'll we'll talk about later. But moving on from casting to actual content. Um, Before we get there, can I just say I Elizabeth Banks did like deserves <laughs> yeah. an Oscar for this film. Like, sure, costumes are my life. So she heavily lobbied for this role. Um, I think there was like a very big push, if I remember correctly, for Kristen Chenoweth to get the role of Effie, which would have worked completely. That oh my is, god, completely. That is probably who I saw in my head when we were reading the books. But um, Elizabeth Banks apparently read the books, had this vision for a very nuanced Effie, not not a like caricature. Because I guess in my head, maybe I was going to like Galinda in Wicked, right? Yeah. And, Elizabeth Banks was like, no, this character is actually really important because she needs to still be human. Uh, because if she's going to have a transformation, it needs to happen. And for it to happen, you can't have cartooned her so much that you can't bring her back. And so- Effie saves the film. And I think it's Elizabeth Banks, like her nuanced portrayal of Effie. Because I think as the films progress, Effie is Effie's from the capital. She's a true believer in the system. And by the last film, which she's not technically even supposed to be in, if I remember um, the books correctly, she goes away after a while. Um, they brought her back because she's the human part of this film. Like you see from just her costumes from film one to what she looks like at the last part in the last film, it's just beautiful. And I think Elizabeth Banks did such a wonderful job with the character. Agreed. And we'll talk a little bit about the power of the costuming um, in a bit. 
So the movie opens up with um, President Snow. Is it President Snow? Why is my brain blinking all of a sudden? Yeah, it's President Snow. I haven't had my coffee. So with President Snow, this like pro- propaganda. Or Trump, whatever. President Trump. Not even. This is so much. This is where we're going. I wonder who comes next um, in this dystopian we're living right now, this dystopia. But um, the Treaty of Treason is mentioned, right? That the the districts rose up against the capital and, you know, now they were in this like state of punishment. Uh, but what's interesting to me is the fact that the, the foundation for the Hunger Games is there is a steep price for resistance and dissent, right? Um, and sometimes it just doesn't go your way. So- And that price is children, ultimately well, is what they're saying, the future. Right. It's not even children. It's your, we will take your future if you are too loud or too um, violent against us. Right. And I, and like the idea that the youngest people and the most vulnerable pay for the sins of their fathers is found everywhere. This is like a a literary trope. It's also just like a life lesson. Um, If you look at, let's talk about like our politics today. If you look at our politics today, the people who are paying for this debacle are the people who can least afford it, right? The children at the border, the communities that are being so heavily policed, their children are being shot on playgrounds, right? The women who cannot afford any type of reproductive care. Uh, the, the list goes on and on, but the, the people who fight rebellions are usually at the top 1% on both sides. And then the people who pay for the rebellions are the most vulnerable, like you said, John. Yeah, it's um, really, it's really, I think this first film, something really hard to to watch. I mean, and we're going to get there with the fact that when I was, you know, following these films and I was like, how are they going to show kids clearly killing each other? I mean, that's one of the things about the books that came out really crystal clear that these kids participate in the atrocities that they're either trained to do they're trained to kill like if you're from you know one of the districts that is wealthier and they have you know the the you know the pipeline of people going to the hunger games to bring forth the glory and you know and victor that that winning such a thing does um to to the very downtrodden and i think it just shows why the youngest and the most vulnerable pay and those districts that are you know the most distraught and you know downtrodden are also constantly re-victimized because they, like District 12 and Katniss and Peta, you know, they never win the Hunger Games. So they can never bring back what all the stuff that you get when you're a victor to your home district and you see why and how that just keeps happening. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, trying to think, when we read these, Obama was president, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I think like setting the scene for the initial read that we probably could not have anticipated how different this rewatch program would be, right? Like, yeah, you sit there and you go, "Oh, that's cute," right? Or it was like, I like, I was, I love dystopia stuff. I love working out anxiety, and now it's like it's not anxiety; it's like my backyard, man. I mean, it's kind of like what we were just talking about with Margaret Atwood. I mean, she wrote that in the 80s, right? So Reagan's president and, you know, reproductive future and healthcare is something that is on everyone's favorite, you know, talking points. And, you know, and she's trying to sit there and tell you like, oh, like, watch out and look at what 
is happening now. And now she's writing a sequel during this administration. So it's just crazy. Right. Right. No, completely. And something that like has stuck with me. So one of the, one of the points that you brought up that you thought was very strong was kind of like the portrayal of dictatorship, right? In this first movie. Yeah. John, do you want to talk to me a little bit about why you wanted to break down the portrayal of dictatorship? Yeah, I think the thing with the dictatorship portrayal here is that we really see the role propaganda plays within that realm from the rise of new media like social media, Twitter, Facebook, and all these other social media channels that we see. The role of people portraying a message to their followers, to their merry band of followers, and what that does to you know, enrage them, liven them up, you know, bring them into battle is is really scary. But I think it's something that really struck me through this rewatch. Specifically, you see it on both sides. You see it with, you know, President Snow and, you know, the ways in which Stanley Tucci's character serves as a mouth point, like mouthpiece for the Capitol and how they have these shows and the role of media and the people just sit there and watch it. It's very much like what Gables was doing during, you know, Hitler's reign in Germany and in World War II. Oh, power of film. I was like Gables. Oh, Goebbels. Yes, but whatever. But you know, Hitler, (laughs) Hitler did it too. And the media was very powerful back then. Film, you know, movies, and you know, the glorification of like this savior-like dictator, which was Hitler, or you look at Trump, or you know, President Snow in the films. But then, the thing I really appreciated and we'll get to this in later episodes where we break down the other films, was how the, the resistance, you know, this, this resistance is also a victim of, um, you know, propaganda and how they use propaganda for filming Katniss and these scenes. She doesn't want to be a fighter, but she has to film this, you know, scenes of resistance to show that she, you know, is this figurehead because that's what people relate to. People relate to something they see on their screens, on their televisions. And that's the problem with propaganda because it serves both good things and bad things. It's a reflection of how you feel about it. But I think the thing about dictatorship that really struck me in this rewatch is the way in which media is played out. Right. And there's a scene where Gail says to Katniss, like, what if we just stopped watching? Like, what would happen if we stopped watching The Hunger Games? Like, what would happen if we stopped engaging? And, and Katniss is kind of like, well, that's not going to happen. So, um, but I think we've all thought a little bit about, and it's start, we're starting to see actually a bit of a, a rise in this. Like, there's a, a lot of chatter right now. Like, what if we all just got off Facebook? Uh, especially since Facebook apparently has been not only selling all of our information, but now like confirmed participating in anti-Semitism. What if we stopped, right? And I think we all feel overwhelmed with the prospect of like re-navigating this world with different tools when the tools that we have are so easy, but what happens when those tools become like agents of oppression, right? Um, Yeah. And another thing that kind of sticks out about dictatorship and, and authoritarianism in the Hunger Games world is when you think about it, the Hunger Games is a child and citizen registry. Uh, it's like it's like a tracking system for your future, kind of like what we were saying earlier. And uh, what if you didn't want to participate in the registry? Like what, if, like, like, what if you wanted to go off the grid? Like, are there ways to resist? And what does it mean to literally mark children with numbers from the beginning of their life up until when they're, and I'm using quotations, when they're safe, right? When they turn, you know, of age and no longer have to be a part of this Hunger Games thing. 
um, we see stuff like that happening right now. We, you know, we, we've seen the want for like a Muslim registry. We're seeing the issues with seeking asylum at the border and then the loss of numbers of children uh, who have come in uh, to the country. So again, a lot of parallels there. And also people that have to put in their names more. I mean, I think I caught that more so this go around of the rewatch of, you know, how many times their names are entered into the bowl, you know, how many times do they have to ask for something from the capital? You know, like this social welfare state that if you need to ask for food or money or medicine, your name gets put in there, your child's name gets put in there a lot. It, it was really frightening. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that that connects a lot to what we're seeing now, which is how many ways am I selling myself to the metaphorical capital on a day-to-day basis? Um, and then it, to kind of tie that in, we've got, like we were talking about the character of, of Effie Trinket, um, Trinket not being a coincidence, right? Just Effie full of shit. Like, and I mean, literal like stuff, right? That the she's supposed to kind of be this like, allegory for the capital person and and i would say most of us are capital people in in, that are walking around today right like we participate heavily in consumerism and and unmitigated capitalism we we refuse to kind of see the weight that our consumeristic like existent bears on other people um and yet does that make us entirely bad no uh it doesn't take away the culpability it doesn't mean we can't change but foundationally we're mostly effie trinkets like we're not Katniss. we're not supposed to be grim we're not supposed to be hamish we are supposed to identify at the heart with the effie trinket storyline at least that's what i believe i just without the fabulous outfits right not all of us look that fabulous um i have issues with people who are like i identify with katniss i'm like do you (laughs) give me your resume of resistance and we'll talk uh or give so, me your resume of oppression in many ways. Like, you know, right. well, like, yeah. oh, really? Yeah, no, like you're, no. Um, and, and speaking to who we identify with, uh, one of the things that I think a lot of us can identify with, though, is one of the main themes of the Hunger Games series in general is the power of, tr- of collective trauma and individual trauma to move forward um, action. So one of the first kind of like images we get is Prim having this nightmare uh, because it's reaping day and the trauma of having seen kids go off to the Hunger Games. She wakes up kind of screaming and Katniss has to comfort her, right? Um, you, you go further, Katniss, her father died in the mines and her mother needed to comfort her. She didn't have anyone to comfort her, the mother. So we have this like perpetual cycle of trauma of loss, of fear, of oppression that um, the Everdeen family is kind of cycling in and out of, right? And you see that with Gail and his family. You see it with Rue and her family. Um, Part of what keeps these folks oppressed, aside from the systemic oppression of the capital, is that poverty begets poverty. Trauma begets trauma. Uh, They become cyclical and breaking them is hard. Uh, when it becomes generational, it's even harder. Uh, Hamish even is a good example of someone who, even though he wins the Hunger Games when he was in them, uh, the trauma of having seen his friends die, children die, him having participated in killing, even at the hand of the state, um, leads him to, to alcohol, which leads him to this cycle of like self-hatred and, and, and well, self 
use. It's very much like what we talked about with our season one recap of The Purge. I mean, in regards to veterans and self-medication. I mean, here we have people that use forms of substances to medicate because they cannot overcome the trauma of the past. And that's the same thing with Haymitch. And I think what we see here with other individuals in the Hunger Games as well that have gone through a serious trauma after winning um, and they don't know how to cope. I think that's where we turn to these substances to help silence, you know, the thoughts in our head because, you know, it screams. It's the screams of when you were a child and you were killing other people. Right. And how do I say this? We are not our trauma, yet we are. <laughs> There's things, which is why I struggled with saying that. So we do not need to be defined by our trauma as we move forward in life, but we are, our, the, the fabric of our being is what has happened to us, right? And so what makes stories like Katniss is so interesting is that it, it bears witness in our literary conscience that, that you can break free while never having to disavow your past. Like Katniss never gets to become free of the capital, even throughout the entire story. What she becomes free of is the cycle. She gets to break it, um, which I think is important. And it's important for people who have cycles of trauma and generational trauma in their families to see stories of people who acknowledge that like loss has broken them and that it has broken their family and that they struggle to get out of it. So I agree. Yeah. Um, moving forward, as we jump on the train, head to the Capitol uh, and get our legs waxed <laughs> as Katniss does. Yes. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh what I think Suzanne Collins is critiquing, which is the idea of the presentable resistor, the presentable woman. Um, but I think it's mostly presentable resistor. So when the kids get to the Capitol in the Hunger Games, they are from top to bottom given makeovers to appeal to the television audience, right? So it is not enough to take vulnerable children and have them fight themselves to the death. They also need to be celebrities. They need to be appealing on TV. They need to be raiding monsters. Um, for the women and the girls, they need to be sexy and cute or sweet and naive. And like um, the boys need to be obviously like masculine and powerful and scary. And I was thinking a lot about this as we look at some of these new and younger folks heading to Congress right now, right? It is not enough for them to have won Congress. It is not enough for them to be resisting. But there's complaints that they're not marketable enough. They're not dressed well enough or they're dressed too well. or they're. And, and I realize that we participate in this external like drag show of like presentation in regards to resistance that Suzanne Collins hits on the head, right? Like I think of the Parkland kids and how their outfits, their talking, their hair, everything was critiqued. And they were like, well, if they looked more X, Y, Z, their message would sound better. And when you look at the Capitol, it's like, you know, Katniss couldn't even try to speak on her behalf to defend her life till her legs were shaved, her hair had extensions, she had eyelash extensions, she had on a dress that lights on fire, right? Um, it shows how difficult it is to beat a system set to entertain the masses and at your expense. And I read it the same way in many ways, but also the, I see it now through the lens of post-2016, where here you have these coastal liberal elites trying to tell these individuals throughout the country, like, what we need to do and what we need to look like and how we need to 
be and you know project ourselves and i see that this is just another critique on capitalism in urban areas and then the real world like in these flyover states like kansas and nebraska and these other areas i struggle with that because i i don't particularly believe in the term coastal elites and if you look at uh, 2016 and forward uh the people setting the narrative right, is, I mean, Trump is not a coastal elite. Trump is an anomaly. But the people for whom he is parading around, like his very flashy daughter, his, like, his wealth, his, like, promise of, like, you can have all this too, is to the rural states, to to the folks who, who view it as simultaneously unattainable, but also their birthright. So I, I wouldn't say that the capital is, like, elites it is the capital is whoever has has grabbed power and consolidated it yeah and i think what i mean by those people are seen from you know all these other districts as oh i think they're very disconnected though at times when you look at the ways in which katniss i feel like in the film you know when she's being interviewed or anything like she looks out of the crowd and she's like what are you guys all looking at like what are you watching like are you seeing the same thing i'm seeing and i think that that's because they are those you know very powerful people who are just really ignorant too at times yeah i would just say like i would i'd say the capital reminds me of disconnected politicians in washington not particularly um just liberals Agreed. I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say, like, when you hear someone in D.C. say that, like, a middle class income is $247,000 a year. That's <laughs> yeah, I wish. Right? That's the capital. When you hear uh, someone in D.C. say that the reason my generation is laden with debt is because of avocados, that's the capital. <laughs> so, I mean, but avocados do cost a lot. How dare you? I eat two avocados a day, y'all, and it doesn't even touch my student loans. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so this idea of presentability and resistance, um, but also having to play play the game, which I think is extremely uncomfortable. We don't like talking about the fact that like, you don't just get to be Joan of Arc. Like you honestly have to play a very shrewd game of politics even to resist. So I, I just, I found the whole thing kind of interesting. Um, you had brought up that you love the costuming and set design. And I think the costuming and set design, particularly in the Capitol, aids in creating that distance between the people in like District 12, right? In, in rural art, like they're supposed to be West Virginia. Um, and the folks who are like dressed in million dollar outfits and who like throw away food and who are here to be entertained by murder like the costumes serve to kind of pump up the extravagance and uh, ridiculousness of the capital identity i agree i think i think the film served or like i really enjoyed them so much um because of the scenery in regards to when they were in the districts just felt really real. Like I knew that woods that Katniss was in. I knew that town. Like I just felt like I knew these areas so well because they reminded me of growing up in Wisconsin, for example, like the backyards of my, my hometown. Um, and then I think, you know, I just summarize it with the fact that like when you and I lived out here in California and we would be like coming down that, glorious mountain to go back to Claremont and we would look at from you know as far as the eye could see we were to see lights and city and urban landscape like the capital right and we were both in awe of it because I think of the fact that we come from different lives I mean I know you were born here and all of that but it's just really interesting 
I think of the ways in which the scenery played that way. And then with the costuming, I mean, it's just, it's just absolutely incredible. Yeah. It's just beautiful. And, um, and I think even the color palettes are on purpose when you're in district 12, it's dreary. It's, um, like dirty dishwater-ish blue and gray and like a very muted sage green. You get to the Capitol and it's like, bam, red, gold, purple. Like um, that stuff is meant to play with your head and to give you a sense of like the separation. Um, and then I think too, going to this like costume um, and set design idea of presenting that separation, we also have characters in the Capitol who from the get-go are resisting. The, the one that comes to mind for me is Cinna, right? So Cinna is Katniss's makeup artist, but also um, like stylist. And I will say it's a bit on the nose, y'all, <laughs> that we have this like, but do you interpret him as, as queer? I interpret most of the people in the Capitol as queer. I, I have to I have to be honest because I see the ways in which they just do not fit out. They fit outside this really like heteronormative narrative. And I think that there's like a freedom, but also maybe like a repressed freedom when you look at the ways that like, you know, there are very strict laws that we, we don't know about probably in the Capitol. But I interpret him as like, you know, polysexual or, you know, Pan Am, you know, in the ways in which I don't feel like he's attracted to one sex or gender. I feel like he's attracted to the person. And I feel like, and I feel like with the people of the capital, like, I think Stanley Tucci's character is totally queer. I mean, I just think the ways in which... Closeted, no? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they are both closeted. It's kind of like what you look at in regards to Russia, right? With, you know, very fabulous scenery, very fabulous, flamboyant, you know, celebrities that they have there. And they sit there and they say they're straight, but because they live in an oppressed government system that, you know, glorifies heterosexuality and demonizes homosexuality or any type of gender queerness. And so I think that's the big problem for me because I don't know really what's going on, but I do read his sexuality as something that is not hetero. Interesting. I will say it's probably an entire other discussion of what it says uh, about, so obviously the capital is not a religious puritanical type of situation like the Handmaid's Tale, because you do see a sense of like freedom of expression through arts. Um, I will say it's tied to capitalism, right? Because we know that like jewels come from like sector two um, for district two and that like textiles come from sector uh, district five. So I think it's interesting for us to chew on what type of dystopian like authoritarian system are we looking at and what is the critique there? I would say that there might be something in there about the fact that and this is literally on the fly, people given enough money, enough freedom, and not slaves to like, to a capitalistic system of work, because they don't work, the districts work for them, are able to more fully flesh out who they are, their expressions, like, I would wonder if there's a lot of writers and artists that kind of flourish in the capital. And while I don't think that is an argument that the capital is the way it should be, what I do think that might point to is what would we as humans do? How would we evolve socially um, if we didn't have to work all the time? If we, and and that, but that would have to be for everyone, not just for a select few, right? So, but that's an interesting thing. I think that's a very solid critique. I think that's really interesting. 
Um, but I will say, I think Sinna also to a certain extent deconstructs the traditional masculinity that we associate with powerful men and men in resistance. Uh, so he is I totally agree. I kind. totally agree. Yeah, he's soft and kind and he uses his strengths to resist, not like a sword or a battle axe or even an arrow. Um, so I do like him as kind of this image of deconstructing masculinity. Um, and honestly, Lenny Kravitz and anything, I'm like, yes, yes, please. So just uh, like we love Zoe Kravitz. I know. Maybe we have like a, a like family crush, man, like for sure. Like for sure. Um, totally. So moving through kind of, they go to, they, they get dropped in the Hunger Games. Um, and a couple things come to mind for me as we kind of, are in the um, the Hunger Games. And the first one is just really symbolic. Every time someone falls, every time someone dies, a cannon is shot. And I thought that was such a visual way of being like, we will take you out. This is not like, this is still war. It doesn't look like war, but these are war cannons, right? Um, and then I was thinking a lot about, so Katniss, we know her as the girl on fire. She's also the girl with the arrow. And I might make some people upset right now as I talk about this, but um, suck it because <laughs> I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to discuss shit. And if you have, if you want to talk about it, let's talk about it on Twitter. But I think she also challenges the way in which we view food systems and sustainability and equity. And um, my main thing here is Katniss with a bow and arrow can keep people alive. Her hunting keeps people alive. And, you know, I come from, like I said, I, my, my job does a lot of sustainability and there's people who are like, everything needs to be vegan. Everything needs to be vegetarian. Um, that's at the heart of like social justice. And a, look, I've been vegan before. I've been vegetarian. I'm a huge animal lover. But one of the things that really softened my heart on some of my ridiculous stances was working with indigenous communities. So like indigenous communities hunt to stay alive. Right. And I realized how privileged my view of food systems was when I was like, yeah, it's really easy for me to be a vegan living out in West Hollywood, Los Angeles, where everything is available for me. But you look at someone like Katniss, who has kept not only her family alive, but like Gail's family, other people in, in, in district, in the district. And then she keeps Rue alive with her hunting here. Um, and then looking at Rue, Rue whose district does our agriculture, there is no ethical vegetable in Pan Am that has not been picked by like Rue's siblings under deplorable conditions. So I'm not saying we've got a solution to like uh, agricultural and environmental issues through the Hunger Games, but I think in a very simple way, it breaks down the privilege of being like, you know, vegetarian and vegan is, is ethical and not being a vegetarian and a vegan is not. Um, Katniss's arrow is 100% ethical, as is her hunting. And anyone who wants to come at me, come at me. <laughs> I mean, it's, I have the same type of understanding regarding veganism and vegetarianism. I understand the ways in which meat eating produces to climate change, to go back to what we talked about in the beginning with the meat industry. But I also come from a place where, you know, it's the Midwest, people eat meat. You know, it's just a normal way of, you know, dealing with life there are vegetarians i always make the joke that we don't have any but we do um but i think the ways in which you know this pr privileged notion of how we eat food or how we view people that don't eat the same food we do is such like an urban like very privileged way of looking at things and that's not how it is for a lot of people because they have to eat meat to stay alive they cannot just eat 
X, Y, or Z. There's a right. lot of things that we need to break down with that. And it comes from a position of privilege when you sit there and say, oh my God, I can't believe you eat meat. You're a killer. Well, and I would say we get, this This pops up a lot in Catching Fire, but there, the other spectrum is food waste and, and privileging food waste and, and, and gluttony. Um, again, there is no simple thing. I actually, the only type of, of veganism or vegetarianism I believe in is ethical. Like I think every other argument is bullshit. Um, I, every animal I've met deserves to be alive as much as I do. Unfortunately, we live in a, you know, circle of life, Lion King type thing. And I wish there were solutions for it that, I, that made sense for me, but there's not, but I love the critique of it here. Um, so, so talking a little bit about Rue, um, I love Rue. <laughs> It was an amazing character. Amazing character. Uh, definitely, I think, is symbolic of the other. And, and, and how people underestimate the, the power of the other. Like something very simple that is symbolic and at the heart of the Hunger Games is Rue's whistle, right? The Mockingjay whistle. And that is not a a cannon. It's not an AR-15. It's not something that we would consider powerful. And yet, what a beautiful tool to keep each other safe, right, in in the arena. Um, and it reminds me, actually, of Crimes of Grindelwald, when um, Newt says to Dumbledore, because Dumbledore can't believe that, that Newt has the blood veil. And he goes, you know, he pulls out the Niffler, and he's like, uh, Grindelwald underestimates things that he doesn't find powerful. And I think Rue is another character in, I wouldn't consider this fantasy lit at all, but within our collective canon that shows that things that we consider without power, people that we consider without power always have their own power and it's our own blindness that keeps us from seeing it. I, I completely agree with you. Rue, I think, serves this like symbolic, like she's a symbol for the rest of the film. I mean, she really does push through. I think she's, ingrained in the memory of Katniss and I really the character who played her the actress who played her is just beautifully done and that and that scene comes back in the other films and it serves as a reminder for why I think Katniss does what she does I mean she takes on almost you know a third sister and a second sister in many ways and you see the power that Rue's memory has over just entice, you know, eliciting more resistance when in the second film she goes to Rue's home district. And I see the power of the little girl who died in the Hunger Games and why we're at this like fire setting area. You know, it's like we're going to light fire to everything because people are really mad. And this, yeah, I would, really I would say Rue is the catalyst in the Hunger Games. It's not Katniss. It's really I agree. Bad. And so when you see Katniss, like, line her up, there's a very visual, like, image that we're all supposed to pick up. So when Katniss goes to Rue and puts the flowers around her, her dead body, she looks like an image of, like, the Magnificat or a, a, a Virgin Mary image, right? And, and of innocence lost. Like, the Virgin Mary in, in theology, Catholic theology in particular, never died. She went straight to heaven. So the idea of someone of, of someone so perfect and pure dying is as low as it gets, as dark as it gets. So that image, we're supposed to pick it up. And then what she we'll had the fast pass. She got the fast pass to heaven. Um, but what's so interesting is um, Rue is supposed to also t- 
to a certain extent, deconstruct Katniss's own understanding of resistance up until the point where she meets Rue. She's like, I'm on, I'm doing this by myself. I'm going to live by myself. I'm going to die by myself. And like, um, she's clearly me. <laughs> like I'm such a fucking loner. Um, but no, like she, she, Katniss is in there. Like, if I suck, I suck on my own. If I, if I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be okay on my own. She meets Rue and her entire understanding of like, how you resist is gone. All of a sudden she understands collaboration and the power of resisting in numbers. And she doesn't have to do this alone. And that's beautiful. And um, if you think about how, how often we silo ourselves, oh, that's such a philanthropy word, but we silo ourselves in our, in our resistance work, uh, we should always call to mind an image of Rue. Yeah, I mean, I when I was watching the fourth film in a rewatch, I I thought of Rue randomly, and and I agree with you. I mean, she is just she serves a larger purpose, and I think she was the spark that lit the fire for a lot of this resistance. Yeah, and and um, that that also explains um, as we're coming to kind of like the end of the stuff that works for us it explains the power of the berries and why the the berries at the end of this film would not have made sense to the capital. So the idea that you live together, die together would probably be very confusing to an extremely capitalistic me society, right? But there is power in numbers and Katniss dying alone would not have done what it did. Katniss needed to make it seem like her and Pita were going to die. They were going to die. It wasn't they were going to make it seem that way. I love that we haven't talked about Pita, which we'll get to in a, in a second. But um, Who? I know. I know. I know. But, um, but the idea that sacrifice is also communal. Um, and, and then deliverance and resurrection is communal, um, I think is really beautiful. Uh, the one final thing I wanted to touch on before we kind of move on to the stuff that didn't work was I kept coming back to this idea of Katniss with the arrow as a symbol. So obviously we're saturated right now in gun culture, right? AR-15s everywhere, killing people everywhere. Um, and I think there's something beautiful about the fact that Katniss's accuracy with a hand-made like, weapon trumps the entire strength of the capital. Um, as a woman, I want to say that female accuracy <laughs> trumps male strength, um, which, by the way, y'all, I, I love, I don't feel like I need to explain this, but like, I love men. I love the men in my life. I love the men that inspire me. Um, I don't actually believe in complementarity at all. I don't think women are soft and men are strong. Um, but I do think in some of these um, narratives, we can see kind of these themes that kind of pick up. And I think one of the themes here is the fact that uh, gentleness, vulnerability of spirit, um, to a certain extent, a person is stronger than a collective strength when they need to be in the sense of like, the fact that a young girl with a bow and arrow can defeat uh, an entire capital with nuclear bombs is, is saying something not about the fact that she literally could, but about the power of that type of strength. So I, I find that strong. Um, don't hand me a bow and arrow because I'm not going to be able to save anyone. <laughs> yeah, I but think the power of what she, what she stands represents for. as well. Yeah. I mean, that's the power of propaganda in regards to resistance or, you know, the, um, or the other side of the coin. She 
getting your coin, <laughs> you know, but like she serves as a way to inspire others who maybe can or do have guns to, to come to the fight. And I think that's why that your critique is completely valid because she at all, for all sakes of, you know, of what we're trying to accomplish here, she's a, a, a young girl with a bow and arrow and there are, is a capital with an army and nuclear bombs and who wins at the end of the day. Yep. Yep. I agree. So let's kind of move on to the stuff that didn't work because we like to shit on things before we jump off. Marcy, did stuff not work for you in this film? So this, <laughs> so I will say that uh, Hunger Games lives in two places for me. The actual Hunger Games that we got and the Hunger Games I wanted. So <laughs> I, I guess I'll start with the Hunger Games we got in and of itself is fine. Uh, totally fine. Uh, <laughs> but I have some, I have some notes on it. So John, why don't you start us off? Some thoughts. Um, so PETA sucks. I don't think PETA was a good casting. Um, <laughs> I don't. So here's the thing. I don't look at the Hunger Games as a like team Gale, team PETA because I'm 33 and I literally don't give a shit. Uh, the problem for me was that he was not a believable co-conspirator in Resistance. And that is a casting issue, straight up. Um, I just didn't believe the the role. I didn't believe the casting. And it it honestly carried through straight four films. Um, so that's frustrating for me. And that's not to say that the actor isn't a good actor. He wasn't, he wasn't right for this role. Um, so I don't know who would have been great, but it it wasn't him and it took me out of a lot of scenes because he just Peter was not some type of bread loaf like he wasn't supposed to be a super boring like malt like shake like he's still supposed to be an active resistor and he's supposed to be able to be someone who holds his own against someone like Gail who Gail is very convincing as a resistor he is willing to go like the Dumbledore Grindelwald route of like yeah I will take anyone out in the way of my resistance and um it's just the casting didn't work for me and speaking of other casting that didn't work for you Marcy what else didn't work for you y'all know I didn't love the Katniss casting <laughs> But I actually think Zoe Kravitz would have been great for this role. <laughs> I mean, we do love the Kravitz family. We really do. So, John, talk to me about, I don't know if we agree on this. You were okay with the ratings. No, I was not okay with the ratings. Okay. I think it totally didn't work. I mean, that's the reason why I think the violence, the violence worked for me in the film because um, and a lot of critics of the film in their reviews said that they handled the violence in the books really well and they, they did it in a really interesting way. It's a very like fast paced scene, kind of delirious. But this film deserved an R rating or a higher rating, the fact that would have allowed them to have a little bit more violence in the ways in which the book portrays it. I mean, these are children killing children. I mean, it's very descriptive for a very specific reason. These are which the, how the capital punishes the districts. They have children kill children and you can't get away from that. That's like trying to get away from a person named Harry Potter in the film, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. You just can't avoid the fact that the Hunger Games involves children killing children. So I would have liked to have seen um, a higher rating. I think if the films were done today, it 
definitely would have gotten a, a higher rating. Um, uh, or I, I mean, like in a sense of when I say higher rating, I mean like PG-13 R type rating because of the ways in which violence, well, seems to sell films and this, that's a whole nother topic, but the ways in which, you know, that's a really important part of the story. And I was, it did not work for me. It worked for me, but I really wish it would have worked even better because I think it would have made the films more powerful. Right. So in the film that I wish they'd made, not the one they did, I think they did similar to what you said. Like, I think they did fine with the violence for a PG-13 movie. But in my head, I would love for The Hunger Games to be remade as a rated R movie. Um, I think that there is such potential to do social critique and to have like a very dark, maybe I like dark movies, I don't know. But like, I wanted the darkness to come through. And I don't know how you do that. I mean, Japan did Battle Royale, um, which is a whole nother thread to go down with Hunger Games, but they did Battle Royale pretty well. Um, so I'm fine with the way that it came out. But in my dream world, this is a movie that gets remade in like five years. I mean, yeah, we did talk about that when we were texting while we were doing a rewatch. And I said, do you think they'll ever do more? Like what we're doing with, you know, these fantastic beast films like i don't think we have sequels but maybe there's a remake in some way shape or form that's more graphic um and just another um quick shout out that didn't work for me you know in the sense that you just talked about it there's um in regards to suzanne collins she i think addressed the controversy of you know this being you know plagiarized material in some way shape or form but this there is material already based off of the ways in which the premise of this film is set and i just want to give credit where credit is due to that author yeah, like I would definitely look at Battle Royale as something that is foundational here, but also just like Roman history of sending tributes to the gladiator pits. Um, so yeah, in my future films, my remake, I would have more violence and not for violence sake, but because I think we need to see the violence. Um, I think we would have more of the capital and the districts, like more of a background of like the life in the capitals, the, the capitals, the capital, life in the districts, um, to flesh out more of the world created by the capital in Panem. Um, and then I would like to flesh out the characters a bit more so that we don't end up with like cartoonish tributes, um, which some of them felt a bit cartoonish. And I was like, I, I would rather we, you know what, this would make a very good limited series. Like where I could yeah. get more, more backgrounds, uh, more of the stuff that you just don't have time to break down in a movie. I mean, that's what they're doing with the Lord of the Rings series. I mean, so I think that th that's a very valid point. I mean, this film would have been an amazing limited series in that aspect because we would have been able to get into a little bit more of, I think, some of the critiques we really have. So, John, I think that covers the first Hunger Games movie. I do too. I'm really looking forward to it. I really enjoyed this rewatch, Marcy. I mean, I think I saw more things in the films, um, solidified my opinion on Locking J Part One even more, and we'll get there. Um, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, same here. I would say some of the big takeaways for me from the first film rewatch is anyone can be a resistor. Uh, there's power in collaboration. Um, even if you are part of the oppressive group, you can resist. Uh, no one is safe from oppression and the violence that comes from oppression, including children, including our most vulnerable, the elderly. Um, but that all hope is not lost. Even in our world today where it feels like hope is a little bit lost, um, no hope is lost because from, from ashes rise the phoenixes, uh, Dumbledore style, and anyone can be 
hopefully not too many ruse, but anyone can can transition into a Katniss, a Pita, a Gale, a Sinna, even an Effie. I'll take Effies at this point. And, you know, I just hope Theseus Scamander comes on. Well, there's some sexiness. There's some sexiness. Well, you know, pop culture theologians, we have a lot to bring to you in the next coming weeks. Um, we will be bringing you episode two in our Hunger Games rewatch with the film Catching Fire. So with that, may the odds be ever in your favor. Bye, y'all.